Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to Indian Religions, a podcast on New Books Network. Uh, I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkran. Uh, you can find out about my background at rajbalkran.com. More importantly, my guest today is Dr. Suchitra Samantha, uh, 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 who has recently authored a book entitled Kali in Bengali Lives, Narratives of religious experience. Um, Dr. Samantha is Associate Professor, uh, Collegiate Faculty at Virginia Tech. Uh, Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So you seem to be fascinated by Kalima. (laughs) How did this come up for you? Well, uh, and I can call you Raj or do I call you Dr. Balkar? I am Raj. My students call me Dr. Raj. Dr. Balkorn is some stuffy guy you see in print at times, you know. Okay, sure thing. Um, So Raj, um, basically my paternal family has a long, long history uh, with uh, Shakta Hinduism, so Shakti Hinduism, right? So, you know, I would hear stories about Kali. I would hear stories about Durga and festivals and worship that... um, would happen on the family home in now Bangladesh. And briefly, my grandfather, a paternal grandfather, set up, um, established a little Kali temple before they all moved across to India. So it's a long story. Yes, and everything is. And a long fascination. <laughs> um, now, to the point of the book, um, how, did the, how did the interest in this research project uh, arise? Well, you know, I um, took my original interest, but, and then I, you know, looked to see what, at the time that I was doing my dissertation and coming up with a plan, uh, what was available by way of scholarship on Kali. And at the time, there was not much. Uh, In fact, there was David Kinsley, uh, who was in, I think at the time, what, McMaster's, I believe, university, I think he was. Correct. Um, Right. And this was, at the time, the seminal book on the goddess Kali, a little book. Um, so I took it from there and I said, uh, perhaps there's, need, there's more work to be done. And uh, my interest was, you know, I think the general sense I had at the time was that uh, Kali had, other than Dr. Kinsley, had gotten a somewhat of a bad rap given how she appears. And my experience as a Bengali myself, right, and my family experience was that she was seen as a, you know, a gentle, loving, beautiful, tender mother. I took it from there. This is a theme that comes up so often. Uh, so in addition to, to scholarship, uh, I run an online school uh, where mm-hmm. the lifelong learners, um, mm-hmm. primarily of Western origin, but also of Indic origin, uh, clearly interested in emic mm-hmm. perspectives, Hindu emic perspectives. Uh, this comes up quite often, this idea of, you know, to Ramakrishna or to um, to Amma, um, Kalima is pure love and bliss. And yet you have yes. this wrathful, gory, yes. uh, outrageous, uh, terrifying. Mm-hmm. And this ambivalence is so difficult to grapple with. And it mm-hmm. seems, uh, I, I would agree, there's been a tendency towards fetishization. I cannot mm-hmm. speak this morning, don't have coffee. Fetishization of yes. this visage of the feminine divine. Um, so, what do you say in this chapter where you talk about the depictions of Kali or, the, or, or Kali in Western scholarship? Maybe we can start there. What do you say in chapter one? 
you know, essentially, I am getting to my particular focus. And so that chapter where I talk about the history of Kali largely in Western scholarship, right, is uh, where I look at some, you know, some reputed writers like Jeffrey Cripple, for example, um, and many others, and um, effectively sum up the history in how Western scholars have perceived this goddess. And, and I quote Jeffrey Cripple, actually, you know, and, and I say, and he says that much of the work has been from a psychoanalytic perspective. Some has been uh, like McDermott, you know, some has been more feminist in understanding her. And so I end that chapter, right, with, uh, frankly, my favorite author, who is David Kinsley. And the quote that ends that chapter and where I take off, you know, is that he says that somewhere a religious symbol has to be meaningful, has to have, you know, a visionary component, right? Um, and uh, it would so happen, Raj, that when I asked my, um, and I say this all in the introduction and so on, is when I talked to my participants, this was a field-based research, I worked in Kolkata, in and around Kalihat Temple, and in and around parts of Kolkata, actually, met people, and so on. Um, when I asked them, so what does Makali mean to you? I was, you know, as I say, uh, I was taken aback by the fact that what she means to them was, give, was shared with me in their stories of revelatory, broadly miraculous experiences, these were ordinary people. I use the word in quotes. Um, you know, so women at home are looking after their homes, small businessmen, musicians, um, but even people like my, doc my doctor father, a radiologist, right? For whom the miraculous was on the one hand, um, extraordinary, and on the other hand, ordinary. It was so everyday. I, I really was um, initially really baffled by how pervasive this belief in the revelatory was. In, Could you give, was, yeah, okay. Please, please uh, continue. Uh, what I was about to say is, um, mm -hmm. could you give us, um, uh, probably more to the heart of the, the book, give us a little glimpse into the revelatory, into the, um, into the miraculous. Okay. What are these uh, folks? So, you, so this is an ethnographic project. Mm -hmm. Certainly text plays a role, but yes. it's, but your text, uh, one of my favorite sayings at the school is the text is on the tongue, you know, the story you tell. Yes. That's, that's the living yes. text, whether it's a Purana, whether it's a, it's a uh -huh. life story or whether it's a personal experience. And so you are studying, um, uh, individuals who have a, a relationship with Kali in Bengal. And what are they telling you? Well, on the one hand, not always a relationship initially. A miraculous experience can change a person and be revelatory saying, here is a presence that is possible for you to have a relationship with. So not everybody starts out there, you know? So which is why, you know, somewhere in there towards the beginning, I say it's these are transformative experiences, right? Um, so to share a story with you, that's what you're asking me, right? That's what you're asking me? Yes. Yes, share, share some okay. insight so that the, the audience can get a sense of what are these, what are these narrated uh, um, uh, 
miracles or experiences that people are reporting to you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just a little prologue is that much more recent scholarship, you know, by Jeffrey Kripal, for example, Obasekere, for example, um, Corinne Dempsey in an edited volume. Actually, these are Western-based scholars or Western scholars who have now opened up to the fact that the miraculous in South Asia is a very, very possible. It's also possible elsewhere, right? And so there's a chapter at the first part of the book actually addresses um, how the miraculous is understood. So in answer to your question, in answer to your question, you know, um, the paradigm that people talking with me, so my participants, in other words, um, used and which I elaborate on in the first part of the book is an indigenous one, you know, um, and I call it, they called it, not I, they called it anubhuti, which means literally an experience, an intuition, uh, an insight that that experience offers them, right? I also talk about, you know, other philosophical concepts of the mind, the man, for example, right? The man, where such anubhuti is processed, where it's experienced, where it's processed, where it's remembered, right? So with that as briefly, the paradigm, right? Um, there were many stories in many different contexts. And, and the second part of the book looks at those different contexts, right? So um, in one of the contexts where the guru, for example, features um, very centrally, um, the particular person who was also seen as a guru, Alok Babu, I call him in the book, uh, who served as my mentor and so on. Um, there were miraculous experiences associated with him by his disciples who shared them with me. Um, you know, that, uh, oh, uh, he could heal long distance. Another guru who was in the Punjab, for example. So here we are in Bengal, right, in Kolkata. And um, so a disciple shared with me the story of the fact that, you know, he was able to do certain rituals and evidently, uh, did have the power. All of Babu himself, I mean, and I say all this in the book, you know, this is not easily um, sort of, uh, how should I say? Um, it's not a simple matter of saying here's a miracle, right? So All of Babu would deny staunchly to me, and he would say to me, I don't do magic, right? In those words, pretty much. <laughs> I don't do magic, right? So don't come to me expecting stuff like this. Um, and yet at the end, as you know, my second phase of field research, he would share with me a story where he said, uh, here's this pilot who is going to be sitting for an exam so he can fly again. And he's gotten a ear infection and he won't be able to fly if um, this ear infection is not addressed. So Alok Babu tells the pilot, you need to go see a doctor. And he would tell me often, you know, my temple is not a clinic. So you, you, you all need to go see doctors, right? Um, so the pilot does, uh, he comes back. And uh, then Alok Babu shares with me, he says, you know, he was healed, but then my ear was infected. And, you know, in other contexts of stories, I talk about how a guru with his powers can actually transfer a disciple's illness onto himself, sometimes at the cost of his own life, even. That's one story. Um, another, if you, if, can I share this one more? Okay. Absolutely. Okay. 
um, the guru was, you know, very much, I mean, very much a sort of center of many stories that I would hear. So I spent a whole chapter on and a whole chapter on Alok Babu as well. Um, related to ritual, for example, uh, this uh, young woman at the time shared a story of, uh, you know, how her family was one of devotees, right? Bhaktas, right? And um, so this was uh, her, they had a small Kali temple, a temple in their home. And every day her father would put um, vermilion sindur on the image of Kali, right? So he had forgotten for three days in a row for whatever reason. And he had shut that temple down for the night when a young woman shows up at their door and the young woman says, um, I have no idea. I don't know who you are. I have no idea why I have come over here, but I got off the tram and here I am. And since I'm here, I'd like to put Sindur on the Kali image in your temple. So her father opens up the temple. She goes in and she puts the Sindur on the image of Kali and then she leaves, right? Um, so the father bursts into tears and he said, I had forgotten, how did this happen, right? It's one of many stories. And one last story I, I will um, just share with you is, there were so many related to this very powerful ritual of sacrifice, Balidan, right? Lots of things. And, you know, and I go into much depth in the, in the chapter and the scriptures and all of that uh, about how this was emotionally a very powerful ritual. I mean, I observed it, you know? And um, it was a, it was as if the whole weight of the world was resting on that sacrifice's shoulders, right? So there was one story uh, which stays with me um, is um, this man who was a musician, the guy I talked, the person I talked with. Um, he talked about a prince that he was tutoring, and the prince was um, really a reprobate. You know, in so many ways, his drinking, his womanizing, and so on. And so the musician said, you know, that you will come to harm if you don't change your ways. So um, that year, the prince used to have a grand celebration of Kalis, and um, many sacrifices, animal sacrifices were offered. If that sacrifice is, as it's called, stuck, it is not a clean severance of the animal's head. Um, it is predicted that calamity will follow. For the person himself, the family, the lineage, it's a long-term thing, right? And so the musician describes to me that the following year, the prince in fact went on a hunt and fell dead um, of a heart attack immediately thereafter. And and all worship, et cetera, was, was stopped. This was, again, one of many, many stories that I would hear related to the calamity, related to um, the offering of sacrifice, even vegetable sacrifice. There are so many, many fascinating themes in what you've said. Um, let me kind of sort them in my, in, my, <laughs> in my early morning brain here. Okay, first, let's talk about the uh, epistemological... Um, possibilities that are indigenous to this tradition. What is it? Uh, I, I think you make a, a very sensible turn. Obviously, it's not my role to adjudicate your book on the podcast. I support all projects that we explore. But it, it seemed, I resonate with the turn to 
to take one's lead from the categories and the structures of, of, of the peoples one is studying, particularly in the Hindu yes. world. Um, um, and it actually makes for, in my view, better scholarship when the data informs the, the, the theory versus uh, the yes. other way around. And so say a bit more about this. Why is this, why do you spend a chapter talking about Indian epistemology? Like, why is this important? This is important, uh, Raj, because I did not want to go, say, the psychoanalytic route. I am not qualified to do it anyways. I certainly did not wish to look um, at the phenomenon of Kali from a feminist viewpoint, even though she gives her name to a feminist uh, publishing house, Kali for Women, etc., which I saw as, again, you know, theoretical, very interesting, certainly, uh, perspectives. However, why I spend a chapter looking at the indigenous paradigm, as I as I say, right, is because my participants themselves interpreted. Now, many were, most were really not scholars. You know, they were, as I said, they were small businessmen, they were musicians, and certainly my father might be a radiologist. He was certainly not a scholar of Hinduism, right? Uh, but they themselves, you know, there was a whole discourse, in other words, that talked about such experiences again and again and again um, as anubhuti. And I say they didn't try and explain these experiences because these experiences are not explicable. They were remarkable, you know, in time, space, I mean, so many ways. Um, But they interpreted it in terms of this um, paradigm, right? And centrally, the word anubhuti kept coming up. So they themselves shared this paradigm with me. The word anubhuti kept coming up. I would find a resonance on this concept of insight, intuition, right? I would find that in, uh, again, not an expert, but in philosophical writing as well as insight, that the revelatory is um, an accepted epistemological way of knowing in Indian philosophical thinking. Right. So here were folks, you know, as I said, not scholars and so on, not mystics who were using that discourse to interpret their experiences and related to this concept of anubhuti. Where does anubhuti occur? It's in the concept of the mind, the indigenous concept of the mind, right, which feels, which thinks, which remembers in a rather different way from what has happened with, say, the mind and the heart in Western intellectual theory, right? Um, so it is a much more holistic uh, experience. And, uh, and then remembrance and, and, you know, change. Change is what I would read into their stories, transformation. So now I go to the temple every day, for example, right? Now I believe. Um, and only one example in my book that I would find this uh, one uh, woman who decides that the gods have not delivered and she becomes an atheist. <laughs> this is in chapter seven, I believe. But otherwise, you know, there is, even among the fairly skeptical, there is a sense of a very wide um, spectrum of what is considered possibly anubhuti or the miraculous? I don't know if that answers your question. My questions are always meant to be generative okay. more than <laughs> more than anything. And so uh, 
yeah. really it's it's the journey uh, there's lots of rich content there um okay. uh, you know what comes to mind for me i'm probably saying more in this podcast than i do in most podcasts particularly because uh Kali is very much related to to one working on the daily mahatmya um, but the, this idea of um, anubhuti, uh, this idea of, of, of revelation or the miraculous, you know, what comes to mind for me, like 30,000 foot view pan out to world religions. I mean, as, 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 as um, artificial as these categories may be, nevertheless, there are trends we can discern across the world's religious traditions. And one of the fundamental distinctions between um, Abrahamic religion for example, an Indic religion is the, 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 the participatory element of the divine, the divine in the world, the, the, uh, yes. uh, to use a, a dated expression, the sacred erupting in, in the profane. Um, you know, you can count on one hand the theophanies of, 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 of the God of Moses, for example. And yet in the Indic world, uh, between the concept of the Atman and dwelling in all beings, between various mm-hmm. siddhis ascribed to various beings, between the dispensation of grace, um, you know, tantra traditions, what I call shaktification of various objects and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's important to understand that in this world, you know, in, in sort of a Western idiom, magic is either charlatanism or paganism or, or fraud because there's only one Shakti account in the world and that belongs to God on high. And in this tradition, it's such that Shakti is dispersed throughout the world and anyone can be a lightning rod at a particular mm-hmm. time. Yes. And so it's a very different understanding of the divine presence in the world and, and that, that's uh, to me it's crucial to to have that on board whether or not we believe in miracles is not the point no. the, the 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 devotees the aspirants of sadhakas they experience them which conforms with to loosely yes. put it the indic worldview yes absolutely Raj. you know this is something i actually sum up in my in my conclusion, because my participants would use the word uh, real and and pretty much analogously would use the word true, right? And the real is, as you said, it's in the world. Does my child get better because she's been sick for so long, right? Um, Who are these dark children who show up at my doors, as one of the stories says, when I'm uh, offering, doing Kali Puja and offering food and all of that, and then they disappear and then they say they weren't there. So, you know, human manifestations, whether it's dreams, whether it's inexplicable lights, for example, right? Um, Shakti as that larger presence is right there. It's in foods, it's in people, it's, you know, it's, it's right here, right? On the one hand. So, you know, in my conclusion, and 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 again, not me saying it, but the, uh, my participants saying this, what is real is, uh, this is what happened in my life. I got a job. I played to Kali, I got a job, right? Um, I passed an exam. That's real. But it points to the true. It points to the true. And they would make that distinction by saying, you know, in Bengali, the word is ashur. Shoto, Asho, right? And uh, the truth is what that experience points to. Now, is it separate? As you say, you know, no, it is very much embedded in, in lives and experiences. And if that answers your question, right? It is very much right there. Which is why, you know, I said it is on the one hand extraordinary and on the other hand ordinary. 
Was there anything that surprised you about this research or that <laughs> stuck with you in particular? Oh, good I mean, this is uh, clearly much of this is extraordinary. But yes. I mean, was there anything about the process or about your journey, about what you learned that really yeah. sort of uh, either surprised you or, 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 or stuck with you about this process? You know, in the first place, I really had not expected to get such data, should I say. You know, I, I really, I was completely taken aback and I thought, what on earth am I going to do with these stories, right? And my dissertation, in fact, did not address because I did not know how at an American university I was going to include such accounts. And it so happened, oh, really serendipitously, miraculously, who knows? But in 2016, a publisher said, I'm interested. Right? And this book came about, which is a very different uh, project. Now, what stood out for me, you know, and I think gives context to, and I would realize in re reflection, why I received this, uh, you know, really abundance of experiences and stories, right, um, is what my participants would tell me. I mean, many of them, not just one or two, is uh, they would ask me, for example, you know, here you are living in America. They didn't know that I was, you know, a poor graduate student at the time, um, that you are walking these uh, dirty streets of Kolkata and wanting to know about um, a deity who is close to our hearts. So they said, they said, right, um, you must have started this a long time ago in another life. <laughs> um, and you left some project incomplete and you are now in this life completing this project and telling our stories. Who is the mother Kali? So Raj, this took me by surprise that so many of my participants would simply place me in that schema, you know, and, and then tell me their stories. See, that was the context in which I received these accounts. So you were surprised to learn that in previous lives you had begun this work to be completed now, were you? Many people, you know, I, and I realized that that is how they established me in this world. And this was, you know, directly related to the fact that I would hear the stories that I did. You see, I was placed in, the, in, in that world where this was very, very possible that I had had previous lives, left work, unfinished and here I was um, you know completing that work picking up where you left off this uh, okay this this and I, and I'm and I sorry say that again picking up where you left off mm -hmm. from a previous lifetime yes picking up where I left off from previous lifetimes you know and so they said otherwise why would you walk these dirty roads of Calcutta and come talk with us and come to our homes um, and this is what we have to tell you. So not exegetical accounts of Kali, but this is how she is in our lives. What is it about Kali in particular, or is there something about Kali in particular that's related to the miraculous? I actually don't think so, Raj. You know, there have been, there's a recent book, 2008, it was edited by Corinne Dempsey and Selva Raj. And it talks about the miraculous in South Asia. So there's a number of different essays by, I think, religious studies uh, scholars and social scientists who talk about different contexts, including Sri Lanka and other places, right? So I think the premise of that book is that the, simply the pervasiveness of the miraculous 
is not something that has left many parts of the world, particularly ours in this case, uh, behind. Do you know? And um, so, you know, I don't know, you know, essentially um, for me to see that people were not offering me an exegesis of Kali, right? Um, what is particular, is that, was that your question? What is particular? Yeah, in, in terms of, is there something particular to the worship of Kali that mm -hmm. is related to the miraculous, do you think, yeah. for the devotees? I actually don't think, you know, I think many other deities um, also for their devotees would have this kind of a miraculous presence in their lives, right? Um, so I wouldn't say it's particular to Kali. In this case, it so happened that, you know, I started, I was introduced to Alok Babu. This is the priest of that little temple and near Kalikat temple. And the people he pointed me to really were primarily uh, devotees of Kali, not entirely. They also had Krishna and, you know, other people, other deities on their altars, for example. I mean, Alok Babu himself, like I mentioned, you know, in the ch chapter on him, in his temple, officially a Kali temple, but also had Krishna, had Shani, right? But he had the Buddha, he had, <laughs> you know, uh, Indian politicians, patriots, and then as I say, JFK. <laughs> well, let's say this is something that boggles the mind of, 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 uh, of many, that the syncretic fabric yes. the syncretic soil let's yes. you know let's put mother mary on the altar next to Lakshmi. why not yeah jesus <laughs> jesus regularly right right but i do find it telling that when you describe the altar to kali the first two um the first two uh, that you mentioned are krishna and shani both black <laughs> like yes. kali <laughs> yes that's right and then you know not that i did that deliberately i was just simply saying here's all of the deities inhabiting this very small little temple. But what blew me away was, you know, there was JFK in that photograph um, on the wall walking the grounds of the White House with Jawaharlal Nehru. And I asked Alok Babu and I said, what's JFK doing here? I mean, okay, everybody else, I think I can get a handle on, you know? Um, and he looks very surprised at me. And he said, why? He was a man along with Nehru. He was a man of great Shakti. So if you wanted an explanation of how Shakti works, there you have it. A man so would you, would you say, would mm -hmm. you say there's something about the theology or philosophy or um, the, 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 is there something about the, the theology of Shakti that uh, renders uh, 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 Kali more conducive to these, these supernormal uh, instances. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. Could you comment on that? Um, you know, this is what I'm not a religious studies scholar. So this is what I learned myself, right? This is what I learned, which is that this concept of Shakti as an eternal force, for example, something completely unpredictable, when it appears, when it disappears, in what form it appears, you know, gives the concept enormous flexibility, right? Um, so I think, you know, that it's, Kali is officially a Shakti goddess, like Durga, for example, right? Officially in that tradition. Um, but I think the concept of Shakti itself 
you know, I, I will tell you, I think, you know, from um, comparative viewpoint, Diana Eck, she writes in her memoir, um, which was, uh, what's it? Spiritual Journeys from Bozeman to Benares is that, I think it's a 2003 book. It's a very, very lovely, elegant book. And she talks about, you know, uh, seeing her brother's body on a visit to Mexico. He's been, I think, tortured and killed. And she's, she compares in that book um, the concept of Shakti to the Holy Spirit in Christianity, which I found very, very interesting. You know, um, so I, I say that in my book, I, I talk about it. And when I would sit at the Kali temple and just observe, you know, and do nothing, I would just be observing. It was that sense uh, of Shakti and not necessarily and only particular to Kali. It is a larger, larger force or not larger, but it is, it is a force in its own right. It's been embodied in Kali as my, um, participants would tell me, you know, it's given shape and form, but it, it is without shape and form. This, uh, <laughs> typically I ask much more broad questions, but I really can't help myself diving into the nuts okay, and bolts yeah. of this particular project. I'll try and this, answer you. <laughs> no, no, the, it's a conversation. I'm just, I'm share yeah. rather than censor myself, I'm sharing what arises. <laughs> My, yeah. um, this, um, so the, the, the priest, the, the guru figure that you study, uh, in the, in the book, would you say that, um, that his abilities, uh, does one ascribe his abilities to him being an embodiment of that uh, Shakti or him being in relationship with that Shakti? He is seen as the embodiment of eternal Shakti. This is what, you know, different participants would tell me. Um, and he has come to that point after some effort, some spiritual effort, sadhana, for example, right? Uh, so, so they were very skeptical of gurus, you know, who did magic. I mean, they were charlatans. So many of my uh, participants say, yeah, we were pretty careful about selecting our guru. We had to be convinced that he was indeed, you know, the embodiment of what they call the eternal shakti. And then I would find that backed up in the scriptures on shakti, on the guru also. He's the embodiment of Shakti. He can convey it uh, to his disciples. It can be conveyed through foods and flowers and prasad and so on, right? But he can mentor you and guide you because he is the embodiment of Shakti. Would you, would you say yeah. this is a tantric tradition? You know, I am hesitant because uh, some of the gurus were indeed that I, I would, uh, my uh, participants talked of could be tantric, but some were Vaishnav also. Um, Alok Babu himself was a tantric. He is now late, so he was a tantric. And he, as I say, you know, in the book, he would not allow me, he was very brusque and blunt um, of not allowing me to see him at any of his rituals. He simply said no. Closed door rituals only. Uh, fascinating. Yeah. Uh, who would you think, who might be interested in this book, most interested in reading it? You know, um, it is, on the one hand, it is a work of scholarship. So I do indeed, you know, refer to whether it's Western scholarship, Han Kali, um, Indian philosophy, um, 
actual scriptures, mythology, all of that, right? So it is on the one hand, but all of that exists to give context to the stories that I would hear, right? So they're not simply stories, but they are stories in a very deep and ancient context of understanding. Um, so I think that it would be um, readable, certainly for scholars, but also for, I believe, students, you know, who are interested in this, uh, in this area of study. And in terms of subfields, um, uh, certainly scholars, um, um, uh, you know, grad students, uh, lifelong learners, inter the interested public, but in terms of subfields, people interested in uh, Hinduism, of course, in goddess studies, in, in Kali studies in particular. Uh, what about um, uh, anthropologists, sociologists, uh, or people interested in narrative? I think all of the above because I really do draw in, I mean, there's a whole chapter on narrative and its structure and memory and so on. Um, so I think, you know, that this is a book that I think covers a fair amount of ground on sure. those fields. Sure. Is and there... certainly anthropologists, certainly anthropologists, but also, you know, um, other folks, yeah. Is this work that you intend to continue or have you moved on to other projects currently? Raj, you know, um, I have actually long moved on and this book, as I said, in all this talk about miracles miraculously <laughs> resurfaced when a publisher expressed, he saw my CV and he said, oh, I'd like a, to see a book on this, <laughs> right? Um, so this was 2016. I had published on this work, you know, into the late nineties. And then um, I moved on and I will tell you why I moved on to something very different, right? Which is, you know, I looked at this very powerful goddess. Uh, there were books published in the early 2000s called Is the Goddess a Feminist, right? By Alf Hiltbeitel, one of the editors of that book. And, uh, you know, I looked at the, the situation on the ground for Indian women, given that here was this, these powerful goddesses, right? And I would move on to looking at women and literacy, um, primarily really disadvantaged women and literacy. So I have, I again did field work. I published a fair amount of work on um, Muslim female literacy. And I worked in a, in a slum area for several years. So I've published it. More recently, I've looked at poorer Asian American women in this country, again, in the context of education. That has been my most recent work, but this book, of course, is published this year. Is there anything else about the book you hope to be touch on? That I, um, that I would have, to, that I would like to say. Indeed. You know, uh, firstly, in answer to your original question, I think that it would be very difficult, uh, certainly in a pandemic, for me to kind of walk around and really talk with the people who shared these stories with me. I don't doubt that if I were to do that, I would still hear those stories. You know, I don't doubt that, right? So let me just say that. It's just logistically not possible for me to do this work anymore, right? Um, anything else about this particular project 
um, it was very close to my heart. Let me put it this way. Very close to my heart. I am so happy that the book saw the light of day. Fantastic. Um, um, <laughs> one needs to enjoy what one does, right? Absolutely. A book or uh, as, as cheesy as it might sound, um, however bright and driven an individual is, a dissertation will not see the light of day unless there's some passion or joy or draw there. That's, uh, there has to be something for the person. Um, well, in the first place, you know, it it uh, inspired me in the first place to do this work. And then this book, as I said, uh, came about and I was driven indeed to complete it and see the light of see have it see the light of day. So, yeah, I am very fantastic. Happy. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for appearing on the podcast. OK, thank you, Raj, for inviting me. Um, can you send me a link to this recording? Yes, I, I absolutely will. If you'll uh, hang on uh, the call one quick moment, uh, I'll certainly yes. follow up with you. Um, um, so for those of you listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Suchitra Samantha, um, who is Associate Professor, uh, Collegiate Faculty at Virginia Tech. We've been speaking about a brand new 2021 publication, Kali and Bengali Lives, Narratives of Religious Experience. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, keep well, keep reading, and keep contemplating the miracles of Kali. Take care.